0: Good evening, everyone. Our second Bible reading is Luke chapter 1, verses 57 to 80, so please read along with me. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbours and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, no, he's to be called John. They said to her, there's no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed and began to speak, praising God. The neighbors were all filled with awe, and throughout the the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking... What then is the child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he said through the holy prophets of long ago, Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare a way for him to give his people the knowledge of salvation through their forgiveness of their sins." Because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven, to shine on those living in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the desert until he appeared publicly to Israel.
1: Thanks, Jono. Uh, If I haven't met you, my name's Ollie. I'm one of the ministers of our church. It'd be great if you could keep your Bible open. We'll be working through uh, Luke chapter 1, that, that portion we just heard read right out then, so do uh, keep it open with you. But as we begin, I'm going to pray and thank God for the time, so please pray with me. Great God above, uh, we thank you for your word. We know that it's living and active, sharper than any two edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and that it discerns the thoughts and intentions of our heart. And so, Father, would you be active through your word now as we sit under it? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Some things in life are extremely underrated. We might think that they're not that important, but turns out they're pretty important. I was reminded of this the hard way the other day. I decided I don't get enough exercise, so I thought I should go for a swim. So I went down to Box Hill Aquatic Center near here. And as I hopped into the water, I realized that I'd forgotten these, my goggles. But I thought to myself, oh, well, there doesn't really matter. I should be fine. But how wrong I was, um, I swam for around 30 minutes or so, got in some good exercise, got out, got changed, hopped in my car, and started heading home. But as I was driving home, do you know what I started to feel? A bit of itchiness in my eyes from the chlorine. And that itchiness grew and grew, and grew, until within about 30 minutes or so of me finishing my swim, it was no longer just a quiet note of itchiness, but it was a cacophony of agonizing pain. I'm not exaggerating at all to tell you, I had to go and lie down for most of the rest of the day with my pillow on my head, because my eyes were so sore, and they were sore for days afterwards. See, I had underrated these goggles. They might seem pretty insignificant, but let me assure you, they are certainly an important thing. And isn't that the way of life? Some things are underrated. Uh, take plumbers, for example. We might think, "Ah, oh, plumbing's not that important. But if we didn't have plumbers, then we'd have no hot showers. We'd have no running water. Our toilets would be overflowing. It would be diabolical. Or what about the spleen? Does anyone actually know what the spleen does? Well, I know we've got doctors here, so you probably do, but I didn't. All I knew about the spleen was that it had a funny name and it was in your body. But it turns out, it's a crucial body organ. Uh, it filters out all the kind of scummy old parts of our blood and stores the, the new healthy blood cells. And so even though we barely give it a second thought, the spleen is vital for the functioning of our body. And I'm sure we can think of countless other examples like that. Some things in life are underrated. We might not give them much of a thought, but they're vital to things working well. And what we're thinking about today is one of the most underrated things about God. If I was to do a quick straw poll and ask you what you think are the key attributes of God, I suspect you'd say something like his justice His mercy, His love, His goodness. And they're all good answers. Certainly they're important things about God. But I wonder how many of us would say that one of the key things about God is that He's a promise keeper. I suspect not many of us would say that. But today what we're going to be thinking about is just how important that is. And my hope is that by the end of the sermon today, you'll agree with me that God being a promise keeper is one of the most absolutely foundational, vital aspects of his character. And so, uh, let's get into it then. Uh, In the first part of our story, we see the birth of John. Now, I remember God promised this would happen back at the start of the chapter. Uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth were both described as well along in years, which I think is just the polite way of saying they're pretty old. And on top of this, Elizabeth was also barren. She was unable to have children. And yet... God makes them a promise. He will give them a son. And what we see in today's passage, at least the first part of it, is that God is true to his promise because God is a promise keeper. The time's come, the baby's arriving, and so Elizabeth calls the midwife, she gets the towels, and she delivers the baby. And as she does, everyone, all her neighbors and relatives, rejoice with her at the safe arrival. Have a look at verses 57 and 58. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy and they shared her joy. And you really can just imagine the rejoicing there, can't you? It's this old couple that probably longed for a child for years and decades, but they were unable to. Yet here, miraculously, a child is born. And so you can just imagine, and it's all because of God's promise. But with the arrival of a new baby, of course, it's time to name the baby. Uh, There was no internet in those days. You couldn't just go and Google search uh, baby names. So uh, what they often did was they gave the baby a name of one of the relatives, either father or one of the other relatives, which is still somewhat done today. I don't know if you've thought about that, but my middle name is named after my dad. It's Bruce. And Levi, my son's middle name, is named after me. His middle name is Oliver, our poor kid. But it's done to honour them. It's it's a way way of kind of honouring relatives or parents or whatever. And it's a little bit like that in those days. But not just the middle name, the first name as well. And what's happening here is that Elizabeth's relatives and neighbours say, you should name this baby after his dad, Zechariah. But Elizabeth isn't keen. Have a look at verses 59 and 60. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, no, he's to be called John. See, she doesn't want the name Zechariah, she wants John. Now, remember, this is the name earlier in chapter one that the angel told Zechariah he was meant to call the child. And so we don't know whether he somehow communicated that to her. Remember, he can't speak, but maybe he wrote it. Or maybe this is God working miraculously to somehow bring uh, Elizabeth to the same name, John. But either way, whatever happens, however it is that happens, she aligns on the same name that the angel told Zechariah to call him. But uh, that doesn't go well. The neighbors and the relatives, they're, they're quite surprised. They say, but there's no one in his family called that. Yet Elizabeth is clear. She wants John. And so they turn to the dad, they turn to Zechariah, and you can just imagine them expecting him to say, no, 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 stick with Zechariah, that's the way to go. But did you see what happens? Have a look at verses 62 and 63. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. He agrees with Elizabeth. He says, it's John. John's the way to go, just like the angel told him to. And as soon as he does, he's able to speak again. Have a look at verse 64. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue set free and he began to speak, praising God. Now remember, he wasn't able to speak because he doubted what the angel said at first and yet now he shows he's completely on board and so he's able to speak again. And as he does... He praises God. And what a thing to use his refound speech to do. And May God help us to praise him with our speech too. But everyone's quite amazed by this turn of events. And so they're saying to each other, they can see something special is going on. And they're saying, well, who's this child going to be? It's so clear that God is at work. But what we see in those first few verses is that is the first promise that God keeps. It's a promise fulfilled, a son. See, God went to the most unlikely couple you could imagine. Old, barren, and he says to them, I will give you a son. But, if you think about it, God didn't need to keep that promise, because no one would believe that he didn't keep it. If Zechariah said, yeah, yeah, God promised me, I'm going to have a son, what are people going to think? They're going to think, you're, you're crazy. And so, in a sense, he was under no obligation. He could have ditched the promise, and no one would have been any the wiser. And yet, Despite that, God keeps his promise. And now if you're anything like me, then you're probably quite sick and tired of people who break their promises. Uh, People who say, yeah, yeah, I'll come along, I'll be there. And then something better comes along, so they ditch. Or politicians, I'm sure we all hate that about politicians. Promise big before the election, then get voted in, and what happens? Oh, the promises go out the window See, the world is filled with promise breakers. What we see here is that that is not God. God is a promise keeper. God is someone we can trust. Because what God promises, he does. And we see that as the passage continues, uh, makes that point even more by focusing on the two greatest promises that God made in the Old Testament. The promises to Abraham and to David. And here we see that God remembers those promises. Zechariah is so overjoyed at the birth of his son that he breaks out in song. I was happy when Levi was born. I, I must admit, I did not sing. It was about 2 a.m. in the morning, so I was um, feeling more like sleeping. But he come, he, at the birth of his son, he breaks out in joy. And as he does, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, uh, because we live in the post-Jesus world that doesn't sound that unusual to us. As as our memory text was from before, we're used to the idea that as God's people, we have the Holy Spirit. But we've got to remember that that's not what things were like in the Old Testament and in these times that's happening now. God's people didn't have the Holy Spirit. In fact, only certain people had the Holy Spirit for certain times, for certain tasks. And so uh, it was usually kings or prophets or judges. But when we hear that, jo- that Zechariah has the Holy Spirit, we're meant to think, this is something special going on. And indeed, it is something special. Zechariah sings this incredible song of prophecy about God's promise, salvation. The song starts in verse 68, but actually what you find, interestingly, in verses 68 to 75 in the Greek, that's one long sentence. It's an 84-word sentence. And what Zechariah makes clear in this monster sentence is that God has remembered his promise of salvation he begins by focusing on God's uh, promise to David, that great Jewish king. Have a look at verses 68 to 71 with me. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. And so what we see here is that God has come to redeem or to save his people, and he's done it through a horn. Now, the, the point of a horn is that it's something strong. It's like an ox, and it's, it's meant to symbolize strength. And what we see here is that God has raised up this strong horn of salvation from the line of his servant David. Now, uh, this is the promise K read out well for us before in 2 Samuel 7. Remember, it's one of those key Old Testament passages where God promises to build a line, an eternal line, from King David. But do you know when that promise was made? It was made in approximately 1,000 BC. It was made approximately 1,000 years before the events of Luke 1. I mean, I'm sure I made promises when I was a kid, 25, 30 years ago, that I've long since forgotten. I promised it at the time, probably meant it at the time, but it's just so long ago I've forgotten it. That's what happens with promises we make a long time ago. But it's not the case with God. Even a thousand years after he's made the promise, he still remembers and he still keeps it. And Zechariah is saying that God has remembered this promise and God is beginning to fulfill it. We see that even more. Zechariah then turns to the other great promise, the one to Abraham. Now, uh, if you thought the one to David was ancient, you'll have no idea what this one is. So, uh, the promise is from some of those early chapters in Genesis, Genesis 12, maybe 17, some of those ones around there. And do you know when this one's from? <coughs> that happened in around 2090 BC. So this is 2,090 years approximately before the events of Luke 1. 2,090. That's from the time of Jesus to now even longer than that. I mean, this is a promise that's made so long ago. And in a sense, no one's alive to remember it. And so God could have easily just broken his promise, not gone through with it. And yet, Zechariah says, this is God beginning to remember it and beginning to fulfill it this promise of salvation and rescue. Have a look at verses 72 to 75. To show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you see the language it uses. It's, it says oath. It says covenant. Are they both essentially synonyms for promise? Very similar kind of language. See, God made promises to Abraham that He'd make a people, and that He'd bless the world from those people, and that God's people would be able to rest securely in God's land, uh, where they'd be able to serve God with righteousness and holiness without fear. And that's what God is doing now. He's remembering that promise and beginning to fulfil it. See, God's promises might span across months, or years, or even decades, but the thing about God is that he will always keep his promises, which means that even if God seems to be taking a while to fulfill the promises he's made to us, we can rest assured that God will still keep them. Have you ever felt like God is taking a while to answer his promises, keep his promises to you? I think for for many of us, probably the big one for this is Romans 8, 28, that great promise that God will work in all things for your good to shape you into the image of his son. He promises that, yet then life happens, and it often feels like it's just difficult thing after difficult thing after difficult thing, and so we find ourselves thinking, well, where's God? Why is God not keeping his promise? Have you ever felt like that? And the wonderful thing we see here is that God does keep his promise. It might take a while, but in his good timing, he will keep it, even up to 2,000 years after he's made it. And that's certainly something that shouldn't be underrated. And then finally, in verses 76 to 80, we see a third promise from God. A promise that's in action, as Zechariah is speaking here, the promise of a signpost. And that, sign, that promise is made in Malachi and in Isaiah and other places. And it's a promise that someone will come before God's Savior to point to him and to prepare the way. Have a look at verse 76. And you, this is speaking to John, or about John, and you, my child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him. See, this is John. He's not the Savior himself but rather he's the one who'll point to the Saviour. How? In what sense? Well, we see it in the next verse. Have a look at 77. To give the people, give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. See, when John comes, he does not save people. In the same way that we don't save people, he's not able to save people. Only Jesus can save people. And yet... What John does is points people to Jesus, points people to the forgiveness that's on offer in Jesus. He points to Jesus' life, death and resurrection, all for us so that we might have life. And see, this is who John is. It's the promised signpost. But the question is, well, why is there even an offer of forgiveness to begin with? Well, it's only because of God's mercy. Have a look at 78 and 79. Because of the tender mercy of our God, <clears throat> by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. See, God is like a loving father who mercifully and gently cares for us, his children. And his mercy coming to us is like the sun rising after a dark night. And long night. And I'm sure we can all think of times where we've been so grateful that the night is ending and the sun is rising. I can remember when I was about uh, 10 years old or so, uh, my parents let me watch the classic movie The Mummy by uh, Boris Karloff. I assume most of you don't know that movie. It's not a great movie, it's one of those classics. It's about a mummy, but it's not scary at all. It's made in about the 50s or something. But I was, uh, I was about 10 at the time and I had an active imagination. And so that night after I've wa- I'd watched it, do you know what happened? Yeah, I couldn't sleep. As I was lying there with my head down, I could hear my heart beating. You know how sometimes when your head's on the pillow, you can hear your own heart beating? But in my uh, active imagination as a 10-year-old, I thought the sound of my heart beating was the sound of a mummy walking up the stairs to come and get me. I don't know, it sounds ridiculous, but I spent the whole night staring at the door, waiting for this mummy to walk in and devour me. And I can assure you, that morning when the sun rose, there's just incredible relief that the night was done. The sun is here. I'm sure you can think of times like that as well, where there was such relief that the night was ending. The darkness is gone. It's done away with. And what we see here is that that is what God's mercy is like. It shines down on us, chasing away darkness and death, filling us with relief. And praise God for that. And Zechariah prophesies here that John is the promised signpost who'll point to Jesus, the one who'll do away with darkness and death, the one who's like that sun rising. And so what we see right throughout Luke 1 is that God is a promise keeper. We see a womb filled, salvation coming, a signpost pointing. God keeps his promises. And this matters uh, so much because without that, if God was not a promise keeper, then this would be useless. If God was not a promise keeper, then the Bible would be useless. It would be a big book of broken promises, a big book of lies, We couldn't trust a word that was in it. But the incredible thing is that God is not like that. God is a promise keeper. And that means that every single one of the promises in the Bible, he keeps. And in fact, do you know how many promises there are in the Bible from God? Uh, opinions kind of vary a little bit, depending on what exactly you classify as a promise or not. But there's one particular book that was helpful about it. It's called All the Promises in the Bible by a guy called Herbert Locklier. And he counted them up and he says that in the Bible, God makes 7,487 promises. 7,487 promises. And if God was not a promise keeper then we could not trust a single one of those 7,487 promises. But the incredible thing about Luke 1 is it reminds us that we can trust God. What God says, God will do. And that means that every single one of those 7,487 promises, God will keep. When God promises us that all we need to do to be saved is to trust in the life death and resurrection of Jesus, then we can trust him. Because what God promises, he does. When God promises us that one day he will make everything right, that one day he will hold the wicked to account for their action, then we can trust him. Because what God promises, he does. When God makes the promise to us that where two or three are gathered in his name, he will be there. Then we can trust him. Because what God promises, he does. Do you see why it's so foundational that God is a promise keeper? Why we shouldn't, why we mustn't underrate that? Because in a sense, it undergirds everything. It enables us to trust God when times are good, but particularly when times are tough. Now, this lady on the screen at the back there is a lady called uh, Bronwen Chin. Uh, She's there with her husband, Richard Chin, who's the National Director of AFES, the Christian Union Organization. And they're her four kids there. Uh, She was a loving wife, a caring mother, a part-time GP, and someone who loved to serve God. But do you know what happened? Sadly, in 2009, when she was just 45 years old, she was diagnosed with terminal pancreatic cancer. I mean, imagine that. Imagine the devastation of knowing you're never going to see your kids grow old. You're never going to grow old yourself with your husband or wife. You're never going to be able to achieve any of the goals in life you haven't done yet. It's heartbreaking. And that could completely shatter someone's life. But in God's kindness, it didn't for Bronwyn. Because she was aware of what we see in Luke 1, that God is a promise keeper. And God has given her promises. Promises that Jesus' life, death and resurrection are enough that she can have the certainty of salvation in his blood. See, she knew that he was a promise keeper. And so what she did near the end of her life, she did die sadly, but near the end of her life, she wrote this incredible letter. And it's worth checking out. So come over and chat to me afterwards. I'll, I'll show you the whole thing. But uh, what I want to do is just share a couple of snippets from what she says. Uh, this is what she says. I'm so thankful to God for the resurrection of Jesus which means I will have victory over death and don't need to fear pain or the dying process. I mean, how incredible is that? Someone staring death in the eyes and saying, I don't need to fear it. I do not need to fear it. And why can she say that? Oh, because she knows that God is a promise keeper. What God says, he will do. And so that then leads her to conclude her letter like this. The plans of the Lord are perfect, even if I don't know the reasons for everything. All I know is that soon I'll be with the Lord forever because Jesus alone has saved me through his death and resurrection. I mean, it's such incredible trust, isn't it? She doesn't fear death. She knows that when she dies, she will be with the Lord forever and all of her pain, all of her sickness from the cancer will be done away with. And she won't won't be separated from her children and husband forever. Because if they are God's people, then she'll be reunited with them one day as well. See, it's incredible. But this kind of trust is only possible because of passages like Luke 1 that assure us what God says he will do. And that gives an incredible certainty. But you know what? The certainty that she has is the same certainty that we can have. I know that some of us are going through a very similar situation to what Bronwyn is. Uh, Either we're facing cancer or sickness or death or loved ones are. And if that's you, then cling to the promise keeper, the one who has assured you that one day he will take away your pain and your suffering. That one day you'll be with him for eternity, rejoicing in his goodness. Cling to God, the promise keeper. But for the rest of us who may not be going through anything quite so difficult to that, we still have our challenges in life. And the incredible thing is that the trust, the certainty of people like Bronwyn is the exact same trust and certainty that we can have. Because even though our circumstances might be different, our God is the same, the promise keeper, who always does what he promises he will. I'm going to pray and thank God for that. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you indeed are a promise keeper, that what you say, you do. We thank you that we can have such assurance then that the promises you offer, the promises of salvation, the promises of justice, the promises of your, uh, your companionship and comfort, we thank you that every single one of those we can believe because if you, you have shown yourself time and time again to be someone who keeps your promises. So we thank you for that, Father. And in particular, we thank you for the promise of Jesus' life, death and resurrection, that if we trust in that, then we have the certainty of eternal life. And we pray this in his name. Amen.